I'll be reading from Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was that ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She had done, she has done what she could, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give them money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now you can be seated. Um, thank you. We, uh, you know, we're, we like to um, sometimes embrace the higher church, but we're going to be standing and sitting all the time. Um, no, actually, I'm, uh, it, this is just, as I said, a fun morning. I've gotten to know all those families who were here and that we got to pray alongside and just even from my own family. And I think back to when we got to dig, dedicate our children, just the, 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 the good news of Jesus is on display as we come before him and we, and we entrust that, that he is shaping us and leading us in light of his grace. And um, so now we're going to transition. We're going to get into, a, into the sermon. And I will just take this opportunity because we'll um, see this even in the sermon that we say all the time, we take Jesus seriously, very seriously, but not ourselves. So we just kind of take any opportunity to kind of joke at ourselves and laugh at ourselves. And um, in fact, an uh, illustration has uh, come to mind a few times that um, I'll just share with you. So we just celebrated our one year anniversary as a church, right? Like uh, around a year ago, this time we launched, we had our first ever corporate worship service as a church and it was fun. And it, and, and yet, um, we're still a new young church, and we're really excited about what's up ahead. But sometimes it kind of feels like, um, for those of you who have potty trained your kids, and you celebrate it, and they're potty trained, and you're like, let's go out and celebrate. Let's all go get ice cream and, and celebrate this. And then while you're out celebrating, like, they have an accident. And you're like, oh, yeah, they're still young. They're still in transition. Well, that's sort of like our church, right? We, uh, we have accidents every once in a while. But um, we're, we're excited to be where we're at, and um, we'll give some more clear announcements on this coming up. But actually, this morning, Redemption Scottsdale is having their first ever corporate service. So we're um, launching or planting Redemption Scottsdale. So if you're from the Scottsdale area, and, um, or you know anyone who's there and might be looking for a church, um, they're, they're having their first corporate service uh, this this Sunday, so that's very exciting, and um, we're going to get right into it now, um, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, 
And if you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and uh, hold your hand up high and somebody will get you one. We want to make sure you have a Bible where you can walk through it. And if you don't own a Bible, yes, so hold it up high and keep it up, right? This isn't like an auction. Um, Keep it up. Somebody will get you a Bible. And um, again, if you don't own one, you do now. This is our gift to you. And I say this every Sunday, también si necesitas en español, solamente diga español. Um, We have some uh, people that would prefer to read the Bible in Spanish and can understand it more clearly, so we want to make sure that you can have one as well. And um, again, uh, keep this, underline it, write notes in it if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And um, while we're getting into it, turning there, I want to give a little setup, okay? Because we're in Mark 14, right? So let's take a deep breath and do, if you've been here all along, you can turn to your neighbor and say, welcome to chapter 14. It's a, new, it's a new day, a new chapter. We're marching through Mark. We've been in it for um, a long time, for about a year, and we're coming up uh, on the end of it. We have just a few more weeks in Mark, and kind of the pace is really, really picking up. And Mark 14 is the longest chapter in all of Mark. And, and so it, there's a ton going on in it. Um, we co- covered all of chapter 13 last week, and we're not going to cover all of chapter 14 this week. As you saw, we're in the first 11 Verses And the main theme now really picking up is the abandonment of Jesus. The main theme in Mark 14 is Jesus being abandoned. And it's on a trajectory again like the, the speedometer, if you will, has been, has been picking up and ramping up. And it's really like the, 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 the intensity, the velocity is picking up now even more. And at the end of 14, we'll get into Mark 15 where Jesus is crucified. And we'll see there Jesus hanging on the cross, abandoned by everyone, by his followers, by the religious authorities, even by God the Father. And we'll see Jesus taking on abandonment and shame and isolation so that you and I don't have to. So he can put an end to those things and usher in the way God created life to be fully through faith in him. So that's kind of the, that's where we're headed. And now this chapter and what we'll walk through this morning is the beginning of Jesus being abandoned by everyone, specifically by the religious authorities and by his closest followers. And so you'll see I have a slide here just for us to have some handlebars, if you will, for how to kind of navigate through this because the author, Mark, um, laid Mark out to be at what is called a Markin sandwich, okay? And some of you have heard this term. It's a literary um, tool to, um, to basically sandwich a main story and a main theme between two other stories. And, and so they're connected, even though at first glance they seem like, what's going on? Why are these things situated this way? Or someone else actually called it more like a canvas, okay? So if you're an artist and you picture um, like an an, um, artwork where there's a main scene going on and a beautiful scene and then two side scenes that are directing your gaze to the main main story, the main theme that's happening. So that's what this is, this Markin sandwich. And what we'll see is first we'll see the religious authorities plotting to kill Jesus. They're insiders. They're, They're church people who should be excited about Jesus, but we'll see them betraying him and plotting his death. And then, in the bulk of the story, um, from verses 3 to 9, we'll see an outsider, an outcast, someone who is not an insider, worshiping Jesus extravagantly. 
And then at the end there, we'll see someone even closer, another insider, Judas, one of Jesus' close followers, betraying Jesus and plotting his death. And so the theme here that we'll see, though, what Mark really wants to show us is extravagant worship contrasted by betrayal. True faith contrasted by false faith. And so what we see as we walk through this is the point of displaying Jesus in the question of how do you see Jesus? Because those who think they see him most clearly, who really think they get it, it shows that they don't. And then those who everyone else thinks, man, they don't get it. They, they do. And their response shows it. So that's where we're going to be. And, and, and um, I'm going to pray now and ask God to lead us through as we consider that really important question of how do you see Jesus? When you think of Jesus, when you come before Jesus, what comes to mind? And how is your response reflective of how you see him? So let's pray together. Um, Lord, I do thank you for this morning, Lord, thank you for this chance to be in your word. We confess, even as we said, this is the word of the Lord, and we approach you with awe and reverence. Lord, we confess that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So, Lord, may we individually and communally come, Lord, with an expectancy that you will teach us and lead us through your perfect word. And, Lord, will you expose the things that are broken in us, Lord, would you deal with those? Bring healing where there needs to be healing, Lord. And lead us to repentance where that's what is needed. Lord, give us ultimately a clear picture of you, Jesus. And lead us to respond appropriately to who you are and what you're doing. So we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so getting into it here in verse 1. Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So this, um, we'll get into this a lot next week, but there, it, it, the author makes a point to say that the, the Passover feast is coming. All right, so it's to prepare you the Passover feast. And us in, you know, 21st century, um, you know, Amer- America, we don't think about the the, the Passover a whole lot. But the Passover is meant here. This is kind of a foreshadowing to clearly display Jesus and this this uh, and the, the whole Old Testament pointing to him, pointing to his sacrifice and pointing toward who he is and what he will do on the cross. That's what the, the, the Passover meal is all about that. And so what the author is doing is he's, he's kind of preparing them. He's foreshadowing what is to come with Jesus. And so he makes a point to say, this is just two days before the Passover feast. And also, it's because the, this is the Passover is to serve as a backdrop for everything that we'll see with Jesus. Everything that is coming up with Jesus, the Passover looms there. And just in short, again, we'll really dive into this next week. But the Passover is the time when God delivered his people, the people of Israel, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he delivered them to freedom. So he could be their God and they could be his people. And so that is coming and that's a, rem- a, a reminder of what God has done. But more than that, it's, a, it's an anticipation for what only God can fully do. Bringing freedom where there's slavery in every facet of life. And so these religious leaders who are insiders 
are completely missing that, right? They are celebrating the Passover. Their whole world was, was based upon this, 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 this Passover. They were God's people, so they said, and yet they're missing it. They have the Passover lamb, if you will, Jesus, the one sent to take on the sins of the world, to offer himself up for the sins of the world, for all those who would put their faith in him. And these religious authorities, these insiders, they completely miss it. All right, these are the people who should get it, and they don't. And they're plotting to kill Jesus. And then, in verse 2, they say, But not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And this is another theme that we might miss that has been time and time again. The religious authorities, the rulers, those who have all the power, all the control, are actually afraid. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the people that we think have all the power... The people that we think hold all the weight, all the decision-making power, are actually fearful. Because in these, in these guys' same mind, they know that their, that their power is not true power. It's derived from the people. And so they know that if the people have an uproar, they could overpower them and their, and their, and their power would be taken away. Their, their authority, their borrowed authority would be um, exposed and eventually taken away. And yet Jesus, we've seen time and time again... That everyone says, when they heard Jesus teach, he spoke as one who had authority. And that word is the same word where the word author comes from. And it says that Jesus speaks with authority in such a way that it cannot be taken from him. He speaks with the original stuff. So what he says and the posture that he carries is not borrowed. And it cannot be taken away. But in contrast, these religious authorities are afraid. Again, let's use this moment. We say some things here. As again, you'll learn at the foundations class if you come. A lot of things that we say, all of life is all for Jesus. And some of these things have deep theological, biblical meaning behind them. And one of those things we say is that in Christ, there's nothing to prove and nobody to impress. And that's, that's a high theological truth and a very, very practical way of life. And it comes from things like this, from the fact that Jesus has authority that can't be taken away. That he presents himself, that he has an authority and a confidence and a power where he has nothing to prove, nobody to impress, and nothing to fear. In light of Jesus, we our identity is formed and defined. And yet again, we see though, the insiders, the religious elite, the pastors, uh-oh, right? Look out, Dave. The pastors, the people who have all the power, the seminary grads, they're the ones who don't get it. The insiders prove to truly be outsiders, to have a false faith because they plot to kill Jesus. And then it goes on. It picks up here in verse 3. Now, again, the scene seemingly twists. Now you go in. It's like, all right, why, Mark, would you put that? Now we enter into a meal, okay, in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of of, uh, Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. So again, we if we miss this, if we miss the, the mark and sandwich, if you just read through and go and you don't take the time to really question what's happening here, it's like, what's going on? Well, let me just pull back for a second and give us the timeline, okay, of where we are. All right, this these events, the event where the religious authorities are likely gathering to, uh, to betray Jesus, and then all the way down there in verses 10 and 11, where Judas will betray Jesus, that's likely happening on Wednesday, okay? So if you remember everything we just looked at the week before where, you know, Jesus judges the temple and all kinds of stuff goes on, that's on 
Tuesday of what is called Holy Week. Okay, so, so Wednesday, the religious authorities are like, let's kill this guy. And on that same day, Judas goes and says, hey, I know a way for you to kill my master, my teacher, my friend. That's all on Wednesday. So working our way backward, okay? Sunday, Easter Sunday, Jesus raises from the dead. Spoiler alert, right? Like, so that happens. Okay, Easter Sunday. That, that day defines every day, but we're, right now as we're walking through Mark, that's what we're looking to, Easter Sunday. And then on Friday, Good Friday, Jesus is crucified, right? He hangs on the cross and he dies. It's Good Friday. The day before that, Thursday, is what will be in next week. It's, it's the Lord's Supper. It's the night of Jesus' arrest. It's when Jesus would be imprisoned and all of his followers would turn away and would betray him. And then Wednesday, again, that's where we're at right now. But Mark inserts a seemingly obscure story that likely happened the Saturday before. Okay, so again, this is important, it's interesting, but it's really important because it all the more shows us that what we're about to read, he's wanting to really make clear. He's wanting to let this story or this this part of the canvas, if you will, really stand out. That, that, that what we're going to read about this woman coming with this really expensive ointment and worshiping Jesus and the interactions that he has with everyone there is really important. It's a contrast to the betrayal and the abandonment that Jesus is experiencing. Okay? So pick up with me there. So this woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it out over his head. Now this woman, we likely know who this woman is. In other accounts, in John, and other accounts, we likely know that the house of Simon the leper is probably the father of Mary and Martha, if you've ever heard of her, some of Jesus' closest friends, and their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Right, where it says that Jesus wept and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. So these are his friends. There's an intimacy there. But Mark wants to go out of his way to leave this woman unnamed. Because what we'll see going on is, first of all, she's a woman. So by nature, in this time, the very fact that she's a woman, she's an outsider. She doesn't belong in that place. She doesn't belong in their fellowship. Culturally, there was all kinds of chauvinism going on and this woman did not belong there. And Mark wants to emphasize that strongly. He wants to show what she's doing and how Jesus relates with her. Okay, so she's an outsider. And he wants to show that this place where they are, he's at the house of Simon the leper. Now, to be clear, Simon the leper doesn't have leprosy at the moment, right? If you know anything about leprosy, like limbs fall off and things like that. And this isn't like, hey, uh, Simon, you know, pass me the salt and like a finger comes with it. You're like, whoa, whoa, take that back and... Okay, he doesn't have leprosy in the moment because no, there's no way he would be hosting a meal. But he had previously had leprosy. So again, there's an intimacy there. Likely Jesus healed this very man. So Jesus is there. He's having a meal with these people. But again, what we need to see is Mark doesn't want us to know that. He doesn't want us to see that. He wants us to get some woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it out over his head. Now we'll learn else when we walk down further in the scripture that this, this ointment that she has, this nard, it's not oil, it's, a, it's like a perfume. And um, I know that's, you might be wondering, like, what is that? You know, you can look it up, but if you're going to Google it, be careful. Um, but it's some kind of an, an ointment 
right, that, that, that is very costly, and we learn it's likely worth 300 denarii. And what we've learned is a denarii is a day's wage. So you can all do math there, right? We're not at ASU, this is U of A. So we can do math, we can add up. So 300 denarii is a year's wage in their day. So this woman has something very valuable. Like I don't know your annual income, but whatever it is, it, it's worth a lot to you. It's worth a lot in general. And she's got this alabaster um, jar. And you notice what she does with it, right? She, she takes a little bit and she pours it out. No. The fact that it's in the alabaster jar shows it's very likely a family heirloom. So it not only has monetary value, a full year's wage, an annual salary, but it's also a family heirloom handed down in this priceless jar. And she doesn't just pour out a bit and take it over to Jesus and offer from what she has left over. No, she breaks it. Showing that she's going all in. She says, Jesus, I see who you are, and I can do none other than just to give everything. She breaks this jar fully, and she goes before him, and she worships him. It says she broke the flask and poured it over his head. She goes all in. This woman, this outsider, can do nothing other than to give everything she has to Jesus. In verse 4, how does everyone respond? And they're like, wow, she really loves Jesus. Look at this woman. She is committed. She's devoted. Look at her extravagant worship. No, that's not what they do. In verse 4, now there were some who said to themselves indignantly. That word indignant is like a flaring of the nostrils. Okay, so they are livid. It's like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're laying on your horn. They're this, they are so upset at what she's just done. And they say... Why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This woman goes all in for Jesus. She sees him rightly for who he is. Even for just in this moment. And she goes all in. She worships him. She breaks his flash. She, she gives it all. And the surrounding people are mad. Some of his closest friends are there and they're living. They say, why have you wasted this? Like, we could miss it. She, they not only scold this woman, but they're dissing Jesus, too. They're like, why would you waste this on Jesus? Why would you, you know, you could have you just, you know, you could have used that for something else. So they clearly, again, they don't see who Jesus is. The insiders, his closest friends, the religious elite, they don't get it. And they're like, man, you wasted it on Jesus. Why would you do that? In verse 9, I'm going to jump ahead there, when Jesus rebukes them and defends her, it's likely, be, again, this is, this is a chance where you, if you've ever heard, is Jesus really God? This is just a very subtle place where one, one of many, we see, yes, he absolutely is God. Because even if he was just a prophet, he may have agreed and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even the angels, when someone would, would offer things to the angels, they would be like, whoa, whoa, don't do it, don't do it, I'm not God, I'm not God, only worship God. But we see here, Jesus says, don't, don't, don't rebuke her for what she's doing. He's clearly displaying, no, she sees who I am. She sees that I am God the Son, fully God and fully man. She gets it. And so Jesus defends her. But let's just spend a minute just thinking about what this woman's doing and how people are responding, and even consider how you and I might fit into this equation because she goes and she worships extravagantly 
But so often, people don't like extravagance when it has to do with God. Even some of us, right? I was at the, I was at the game last, or y- y- yesterday, the U of A football game, and I watched the U- U.S. versus Mexico soccer game in Spanish. It was on Telemundo because it wasn't on English channel that we get. So we watched it as a whole family and surrounded and, you know, goal and all the excitement. And, you know, you, the fans are going crazy. The outfits that people will wear, the stuff that people will do, the fights that people will get in for their team, right? We're okay with extravagance. It's just selective extravagance. We'll tolerate people being, being extravagant, sometimes even in the most crazy ways. Right? Like Donald Trump, I'm not going to get into that too much, but we're okay with the extravagance. Right? We're okay with just the, the, the excessiveness. Or sexually, we're okay with sexual extravagance in our culture. And we even celebrate some of our favorite sports stars and the extravagant, insane amounts of money that they get in. And we get mad at them for holding out for a greater contract. And the, the whole, it's just, you see the, 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 the contradiction there. But at church sometimes we're like, whoa, don't get a little fanatic. You don't get crazy. And I've said before, let's just get real here. I've said before, like, guys, can we become a clapping church? And we're getting there. We clapped this morning a little bit. And let me say, we don't have to be a clapping church, okay? I want us to authentically be whoever God has called us to be. And I think that's the picture here, is this woman saw Jesus rightly for who he is, and she responded in such a way that she could do no other. She went all in. I don't know what going all in means for everyone in this room. But I know it needs to be an authentic reflection of our right understanding of Jesus and who he's in, who he, who he is and what he's done. So for me, when I say I want to be a clapping church, I'll just be real. I was baptized in a black Pentecostal church. So being a clapping church, like I want, man, tambourines, we could get crazy in here and I would love that I would feel at home and and there would be a right reflection but for some of us and sometimes even in our in our song choice and just so you know Stephen the worship leader and the worship team they come around this subject they meet once a month and they talk about our worship our corporate singing and how we can grow and what we're doing and where we're at and what it looks like and that's a whole other subject but I'm so thankful that they do that and, and our prayer, we spent serious time just praying. And what it comes down to it is, God, let us be authentic. Let us rightly respond to who you are according to our cultural context, according to who we are. And I honestly think that's, an, that's going to be a growing process for us. To rightly reflect our community and the diversity therein and the age differences and the, and the ethnic differences and all that. And I'm excited to enter into this growing process together. Because sometimes we sing, we sing songs that like you need to have a PhD to understand. And, there's, right, and you're sitting there and you're like, I can't even sing right now because that word is huge and I don't know what it means. And there's something good there. There's something in acknowledging God is a high God and He is worth our intellectual um, devotion and sitting there and considering what we're singing and not just singing things that you can be thinking about the hot dogs we're going to eat for lunch and just tune out, right? Sometimes it's really good to sing songs that force us to engage and to go all in intellectually. But sometimes too, and the worship team has been doing this, we sing songs that you just like that one. Like, and I'm terrible at remembering words of songs like the second after they're sung. So I'm like, but we just sang something along the lines of, you know, I will climb this mountain with my 
Arms wide open, or eyes, eyes wide open, hands wide open, ears wide open, arms wide open. The whole deal, everything's wide open. And then we switched and we said, we will climb this mountain. And there's intentionality, but you can kind of tune out intellectually and just get into a rhythm. And you go before God and you say, I and we will come before you expectantly, worshipfully. And there's, there's an authenticity there. So however we're called to grow as a church in this, it needs to come back to, just like this woman, rightly responding to a holy God who laid down his life to take us from being enemies to children. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're seeing about. That's the posture we come with. And that's what this woman was doing. But these people, they didn't like it. They're offended. She threw, they, she threw caution to the wind and they held on to dignity. To, to high church, to high brow. We don't do that. And yet she did that. And one author wrote something that I think we can really learn from. N.T. Wright says this, When people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition, to pour out their valuables, their stories, their dancing, their music before Him, just the way they feel like doing, others looking on, Find the spectacle embarrassing and distasteful. Now, this guy's an Englishman, so you can just hear the voice if you can, the accent. You know, they, they find it distasteful, and you know, and there's kind of, and he's a, and he's he's a scholar. He's a PhD in Cambridge, England. So this guy is intellectual, and yet he is calling us to recognize. So often, when we're insiders when we get too used to church, when we become a little inoculated to the good news of Jesus, we become offended by emotional singing and, and going all in. That's, that's, we're above that. And this is a warning. Don't be so much of an insider that you fail to be excited about the person and work of Jesus. And so... Jesus accepts this extravagance. He accepts this worship and he defends her. All right, if you, if you pick up with me again here in verse 5. Or I'm sorry, in, uh, in, verse, in verse 6. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do for them. Or you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Leave her alone. Let her come authentically before me, however she is compelled to do. She is thrown caution to the wind. Perhaps you could learn from her. Let her be. And again, we said Jesus is showing his deity because anyone else, even a prophet, a good teacher, anyone else would have said, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't be doing this for me. Save that ointment for God. Take that to the temple. But he doesn't do that. He says, yeah, you rightly see, I am none other than Almighty God. Come and worship. And this is where the fact that this is an unnamed woman, an outsider, we cannot overlook, okay? Because in this culture, women did not do what she's doing. This is a male gathering. This is the guy sitting around, fellowshipping, talking about high and lofty things that women weren't allowed into in their day. A lot of people might say the Bible is chauvinistic or it's not, it doesn't, you know, it's all for white middle class men. And that's sadly, tragically, I will admit it has been used as such way too often. 
But if you fully come under and submit to God's Word, as we seek to do, you can't take that posture because in its cultural context, Jesus refers to women here in a positive light more than anyone else. And he refers to outsiders and downcasts and those that would be, would be rejected by society. Lepers and, 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 and poor people and people with illness who would be pushed to the sides of society. Jesus welcomes and, and embraces them and even uses them as an example Because women are mentioned 22 times in Mark, which is unheard of in and of itself. And 15 of those times are incredibly positive ways. Where Mark is saying, look to these women as as examples. The people that you call outsiders, the people that you don't accept, they're your example. This is your example of worship, and we can't miss that. Jesus constantly goes after the least of these. That is his heart. Let us take note, church. Let us be convicted in our core, if we will, if that's not comfortable for us. So this woman comes crashing in, and she anoints Jesus extravagantly, and Jesus defends her. But then what about this next verse there, where he says in verse 7, you'll always have the poor with you, and you can do good for them whatever you want, but you won't always have have me. That's confusing, right? We're like, whoa, Jesus, you just threw the poor under the bus. Like, man, you are... No, right? That is, a, that is a direct contradiction to everything we just said, to everything we've seen throughout Mark. Jesus goes after the poor, after the least of these. He, that's who he's come for. That's his heart is truly for those who recognize and are outcasts. Because we're all outcasts. We're all, we're all, we're all broken and, and, and separated from a, a holy, heavenly God. Just some of us, because of our, our financial status or our workplace or our, our social status, some of us aren't, don't remember and realize our, that we are truly poor. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that means those who recognize their poverty, and so often the poor and the outcast, the outsider, they know their need. They can't rely on anything else. And Jesus affirms that. So why does he say, you'll always have the poor with you? First, what he's likely doing here, he's calling them out. All right? Like if you're a parent and you're in this room, you know what bedtime can look like, right? Like let me ask you, this is a rhetorical question, but is water important? Yes. Is going potty important? Yes. Right? You would never deprive your children of going potty or of drinking water. Yet, you know what nighttime can look like. I gotta go potty. I need some water. I need something. It's a smoke screen, right? You don't want, in that moment, right? It's like you had all day. My kids have even done crazy stuff. Like, I forgot to pull the weeds that you told me. I'll be right back. I'm gonna go pull the weeds. It's like, get back here. You're pulling the weeds tomorrow morning, but you're going to bed right now. That's what's going on here. They're like, the poor, Jesus, the poor. We could have used this ointment. Like, I don't like this extravagance. I'm not comfortable with the idea that I have to go all in for you. So I'm going to go potty right now. We're going to go feed the poor. And Jesus says, you always, yeah, the poor, yes, feed the poor. You can always do that. But you're missing who I am. And you've created all these smoke screens to justify your religious way of life where you don't have to go all in for who I am and what I'm doing. And he is making that abundantly clear. And then in verse 9, he takes it a step further. And he says, 
Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He makes a promise. Does that promise come true? Here we are, October 2015. I don't know if the Back to the Future prophecies are going to come true this year. If you guys know that, they've, they've declared or whoever... You know, Doc or Marty McFly said, this is the year the Cubs win the World Series. It's even one and one. They might. We don't know. But right there is, we can't take that to the bank. But any prophecy, if some of you don't even know what I'm talking about at all, Back to the Future 2, he goes to the future and all kinds of things happen and the Cubs win the World Series and all this stuff. And a lot of those things are seeming to take place this year, but it's fun, but... It's not real. It's not from God. You heard it here. All right, so um, there it is. But um, so if the Cubs don't win the World Series, it doesn't mean anything. It means they're still the Cubs. But, um, but this comes true. October 2015, we're talking about this woman and her extravagant worship. We're talking about this outsider, this woman who's used by Almighty God. Verse 8 says, to prepare the Son of God, for His burial, for His Passover sacrifice on the cross. So what Jesus is saying is, in the economy of the kingdom of God, the things that value, that you value, the things that you think are going to last, the things that you're pouring everything into, probably won't even be remembered years from now. But this simple act from this woman Rightly recognizing and exalting and worshiping extravagantly the Son of God will be talked about forever. And it is today. The outsider worships extravagantly, but the insider has plotted Jesus' death and completely missed him. And then lastly, we come around to some tragic verses in verses 10 and 11. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. He went on his own initiative, all right? We often think about, and I'm not going to get into this too much, but we think Judas was, you know, it talks about God hardened his heart, and was he one of the elect, or was he, was he destined by God to betray Jesus once and for all? And these are high subjects right here. And I'll just say, you see both here, okay? You see that God is sovereign over his purposes constantly. That God will use human history to, to, to bring about his ending and his perfect will once and for all. That Jesus is, we've talked about, the author and the hero of the story. He's not an innocent bystander. Whatever you and I are facing right now, globally or individually, God is not biting his fingernails. He's in control. He will use it. But we see in Judas his will to carry out what he wants to do. It's not like he's like, Jesus, please let me follow you to the end. No, on his own initiative, he still does what he wants to do, what his own hardened heart compels him to do. And so he goes and he sells out Jesus. And it says that he took the initiative, he goes before the chief priest in order to, to betray Jesus. This is an insider. This is as insider as you get. All right? Let me look at me. Let me ask you this. On what does your relationship with Jesus depend? If it's simply proximity, be warned. Be warned. 
If you grew up in a Christian home, if you're here and you went to church your whole life, if you're here with your parents because you want them to think you're going to church because they took you to church your whole, I don't know if that's going on here, I'm just throwing it out there, maybe have a conversation after. Wherever, wherever you're at though, right, you went to Awana, you know all the things, you sang about Father Abraham, all these things that the other people that didn't go to, go to church camp growing up are like, you guys are weird. Right? You listen to Caleb all the time. You assume that because you come to church on Sunday morning, you're good. Be warned. Let Judas be a stern example for us. The proximity to Jesus can still lead to false faith. Because Judas is proving that his faith in Jesus, his dependency upon Jesus, his expectations of Jesus were eventually exposed and proven to be false and led to incredible, tragic Sad treachery. If he betrays Jesus, his friend, he, he was in the trenches with Jesus time and time again, and yet he betrayed him. And then in verse 11, it says, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. They were glad. Let's not miss that. What had to happen in their lives? What kind of hardness in their hearts had formed and developed? What kind of filters, what kind of justification that God had given in His Word had led them to rejoicing, to being glad, to getting giddy over the opportunity to crucify the gift of God coming who would lay down His life for them? They were so glad at this opportunity. Let us be warned. Let us be aware. Let us be on edge. So as we close, let us look at this example where we have seen insiders, church people, have proven that their faith is false. Because over time, when the light of the gospel shines on the truth of their lives, they're offended and it leads to betrayal. And it's tragic. Yet an outsider, an outcast, someone who didn't have many other legs to stand on, which is the true reality for all of us in this room when we come before God. She sees Jesus rightly and she runs to him. She goes all in. She gives all that she can and wants to give more. So I asked you at the beginning, how do you see Jesus? Do you see him as an opportunity to be exploited? And use in whatever way to justify your own life or to kind of further your own agenda, to further elevate you as the hero of the story? Or like this woman, do you see him as a savior to be worshipped and one to go all into and one to respond to extravagantly, however that looks, in your life, in our life together? Because false faith will lead to terrible contra will lead to terrible terrible compromise, even from insiders. But true faith always leads to extravagant worship, rightly responding to the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for, um, Lord, the hard truths, the, Lord, the things that you subtly put in. Thank you that we've learned what a marking sandwich is through our time walking through a book of the Bible. Um, Lord, there are a lot of subjects that we want to dive into and talk about, but um, Lord, we know that we need to be formed by you. So we have come humbly, 
And now we're asking through the power of the Holy Spirit that you will lead us rightly to respond to you in whatever way that looks. Lord, in our singing, Lord, let us learn together what that looks like to authentically and appropriately and rightly respond in extravagant worship to our Lord and our Savior. Lord, in our living and in our giving and our posture toward others, Lord, let us live extravagantly in all of life in response to your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we pray and respond in Jesus' name. Amen.